This is the Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally, or outside the immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Study and show yourself approved of God as a workman who is not ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. We welcome you this hour to the Bible line. You may be a first-time listener, so let me just say that for the next hour, we will be taking people's questions. Maybe you've been studying a passage of Scripture and you have some challenges you're trying to wrestle with, or you're looking for a biblical counsel on an issue you're facing in your life or ministry, well, if we can be of help to you here at the end of July 2022, we will do our best. So we're right here in the studio, ready to take your questions. Again, the uh, South Carolina 843 exchange is 525-1859. You can also email us here directly into the studio, and the email address is TBL. That stands for the Bible line at WAGP.net. So either of those ways will get you through. Um, You know, sometimes people ask me, they say, I have questions, but I can't listen at that time. And that's not a problem. If you submit it uh, through the email, Rick will pull it up, and then after we answer it, and sometimes it takes a month or two to get to it, uh, it will indeed be responded to, and uh, you'll be emailed the day in which it was done. You can scan the questions that were asked that day. You don't even have to listen to the whole Bible line if you don't want. So with that said, Rick, let's go ahead and get started. Very good. Uh, Joan from Royston, Georgia writes, what is replacement theology and who believes in it? Well, it's a great question, and it's a critical question because now, sadly, replacement theology has embraced a lot of the body of Christ, at least in America. Uh, It's also known as supersessionism, that the church has superseded Israel, or you could say that the church has replaced Israel. And so sometimes when you hear people referring to Israel as the new Israel, then you're typically speaking to a replacement theologian. So the question becomes, um, is that the case? And again, the essence of replacement theology is that the church has superseded Israel, so supersessionism, and that the promises that God made to Israel no longer apply to Israel, but they simply apply to the church. And it's really false. You, you have to manipulate Scripture. You have to reconform Scripture. Uh, supersessionism or replacement theology comes out of Augustine largely, who was a leader in the church, And Augustine was influenced by one of his predecessors. But, you know, you didn't typically want to speak against the leadership of the in those early centuries that you might have been under to say, well, there is a coming king who's going to rule and reign upon the earth and all the kings of the world will be subject to them. And and so to take a a more neutral view, you, you just said, well, not literally, you know, we worship Jesus, but. He won't rule and reign for a thousand years. Well, he sowed the seeds, again, largely Augustine, but influenced by earlier people. Um, He sowed the seeds for Roman Catholic doctrine. So when the Roman Catholic Church starts in the late 6th century, 
uh, they basically say, well, God's done with Israel. We are the new Israel. We have replaced um, national Israel. We are now the chosen instrument of God. And of course, during the time of the Protestant Reformation, you had people like Calvin and Luther and others who you know, came out of Catholicism. We often speak of the Reformation, but maybe we don't speak enough of those who were never involved in the Reformation and that they weren't trying to reform Rome because they were never a part of Rome. God has always had his church. He always had people that met through the centuries. But certainly by the time of the Protestant Reformation, the overarching ruling instrument that came under the banner of Christianity was called Roman Catholicism. So when Luther and Calvin broke from Catholicism, they were certainly correct on their doctrine of soteriology in the sense that uh, soto, to save. Um, So when we speak of the doctrine of soteriology, we're speaking of the doctrine of salvation. They were certainly correct in saying that the Roman church was in error and that they denied salvation by grace alone through faith alone. And so when Luther attacked the 95 assertions on the church at the door in Wittenberg, he was affirming 95 ways in which the Roman church had departed from biblical truth. And, of course, a lot of those focused on purgatory, which was a logical doctrine, in that if man partially earns salvation by works, Catholics wouldn't deny the death, burial, and resurrection. It's just not sufficient to save. You're also saved by works faith plus works, and they take verses out of James and other places out of its context. And so when Luther posted those 95 theses, he was challenging. He was trying to reform the church. He didn't even want to leave the church. He wanted to change the church. Of course, in the process, he's kicked out at risk of his own life. But these men then put a different spin on the area of uh, ecclesiology. So they embraced infant baptism just said it didn't wash away sin that instilled salvation, but it was a covenant between the parents and God. But it's still very Roman Catholic. And then in terms of Israel, God's done with Israel. Sadly, Luther, Calvin said some things that would certainly be classified, certainly be classified as anti-Semitic, but they taught in essence that the body of Christ, not the Roman Catholic Church, but the body of Christ, those who were born again, had now replaced Israel. But listen, God made some unconditional covenants, and I covered this, the Abrahamic covenant, in my series on Genesis. You might especially want to listen to Genesis 12 and Genesis 15, uh, but additionally, uh, it's spoken of in some other passages, and it's reaffirmed uh, to Abraham's son, Isaac, and in Genesis 26, and later his grandson, Jacob, in Genesis 28. And so God made some promises that were unconditional. They were not dependent on the faithfulness of Israel. And that's the very nature of the covenant that he caught literally with those animals where Abraham was asleep. It wasn't a dual agreement. God walks through the pieces instead of two people walking through the pieces. And God made an unconditional covenant that was personal, national, and universal. In terms of personal promises, God said, I'm going to make your name great. I'm going to bless you financially and I'm going to bless you spiritually. In terms of a national promise, God said your descendants would multiply as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sand of the seashore. So he affirms it on two occasions uh, using both of those uh, metaphors, and then God gave him a land that God describes as their everlasting possession. 
So Israel has the rights to the land. Uh, add to that, there was um, uh, other national promises in reference to other ca- countries of the world, those that bless Israel, God would bless. We just showed um, a couple weeks ago on our Wednesday night service, America and the Israel Effect, and it was a great documentary kind of walking through times when God put his hand over uh, the U.S. and blessed them because they were blessing Israel when God withdrew his hand because of their rejection of Israel. And that's currently where this administration is at. Uh, it's kind of, well, we agree with you in name only, but they are moving more towards the Palestinian argument and rejecting basic truth that God has revealed in Scripture. But that doesn't surprise us because they reject the Scriptures in practice as a whole. And then there was a universal aspect to the covenant God made that through Abraham's seed, pointing to the Messiah, all the nations of the world would be blessed because the Messiah would come from the Jewish nation. So fundamentally, I reject replacement theology. Who believes it? Uh, Millennials, Calvinists, uh, they all come under that category. So if you want to know typically if someone is replacement, just ask them their view. Will Jesus literally rule and reign on the earth for a thousand years? If they say no, they're a millennial, they are embracing replacement theology. That's a great question. Um, It's really an armchair question we could spend several hours on, but you might, if you really want to study, go back to those sections in Genesis or even listen to my series on the book of Revelation. Because again, you know, you got guys like, okay, Avadi Bakum, he's a great brother. He preaches the gospel, deals with a lot of uh, difficult issues, working mothers, women preachers that people are, you know, giving in on, but he's a millennial. And so he sees the book of Revelation as historical and not the futuristic view. Uh, John Piper would fall into that category uh, and several, several others. But again, historically, the American church did not take that view. But in the last 30 to 40 years, that's now become the prominent view in American theology. 843-525-1859. If you have a question on today's Bible line, Abigail from Beaufort writes, Last month, I participated in a month-long excavation project at an archaeological dig in Israel. One of the sponsoring schools for the dig was Brigham Young University, the university affiliated with the Mormon Church. I spoke with the Mormons on the excavation about their doctrine, but we were never able to get very far into a discussion, as they kept saying Mormonism is simply another denomination of Christianity. Thus, they shut down the conversation by simply agreeing with me. For example, I explained that Jesus is the Son of God and that man can only be saved by putting faith in Jesus' work on the cross. That is, Jesus is not simply another good man who set an example for us while here on earth so we could try and lead better lives. They said they agreed with that premise, which, if so, I'm not sure what differentiates Mormons from another denomination. If we believe Jesus is the Son of God who saves us, there may be doctrinal differences between one denomination and another, but isn't this the main point of Christianity? I'm now struggling to identify the key parts of the Mormon doctrine that make it a cult. I've heard it described as a cult of Christianity my whole life, but the Mormons I met were very good at saying that they are Christians just like I am. What are specific reasons that make Mormonism and Christianity not the same? I want to be able to share my faith with people I met on the trip who are part of the Mormon church and currently consider me a sister in Christ. Any key points and scripture references you could uh, could provide would be very helpful. 
as I have an upcoming Zoom call to discuss the differences in doctrine, and my goal is to share biblical truth. Well, I don't know if I missed her Zoom call or not. This question came in while I was away at my son's wedding in California. But let's define some terms. First, the term cult. Obviously, Mormons would take great objection to being called a cult because they want to fit in uh, with Christianity. It was a little over a decade ago uh, they had a national training where they said, we want to partner with evangelicals. We want to begin to posit ourselves as just another denomination within the realm of Christianity. So let's define some terms here. First, a cult, you know, the, the term is used different ways. And if you're going to use the word cult, I think it's important that you define it because you don't want to unnecessarily drive a Mormon away when you might have the opportunity to share Christ. So typically when I refer to Mormons as a cult, I will define that I don't mean a Jim Jones cult. I don't mean some kind of a group that performs a violent act against people or uh, is encouraging people to make you know irrational, unhealthy decisions that could endanger their life in a physical realm. Um, Jim Jones, you may not know him, but he was a guy who was a cult leader and he got, I forgot, 920 some people to drink poison and they all died and thought they were going to heaven. But we're defining the term cult within the realm of theology where, where it's in reference to a religious group that would define one of the fundamentals of biblical truth. And Mormonism fits into that. Uh, they definitely uh, are not true Christians. They're trying to reposition themselves as another form of evangelical Christianity, and how strategic of the evil one to do that. Because now we live in a day where Christians are so untaught, they uh, don't know sound biblical doctrine. I don't know where Abigail's from, but if you're— Buford. Oh, she's from Buford. Well, I don't know what church you're going to, but um, you, you you may not be grounded much or you're a new Christian. Uh, in our discovery class, uh, it's a 45-week discipleship class, and one of the issues that we deal with is the deity of Christ. And within that lesson, we deal with aberrant views on the deity of Christ, including Mormonism, Jehovah's Witness, and so forth. So these are like really important, critical issues. So again, if you use the term cult, say, look, I'm not saying that you folks are, you know, trying to manipulate people to endanger themselves in terms of, you know, drinking poison or that you're following, you know, some guy who's getting you to, you know, be like a robot. But in terms of your theology, that's how we are using the term cult. And it's important, I think, to speak the truth in love to help them to see that Mormon teachings are totally incompatible with the Christian faith. They are in the words of the Apostle Paul. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 11, verse 4, actually quoted this verse on Sunday around the Lord's table, is they're preaching another Jesus. They preach Jesus. They just preach another Jesus. And so terms are really critical because they use the same terminology, but they have a different dictionary to define them. So do they believe in the deity of Christ? You said, well, we believe that Jesus is the Son of God, and your Mormon's friends say, well, so don't we. We believe he's the Son of God, that he's the Savior. Same words, different dictionary. When they use the term Son of God, they don't mean it in reference to that he's God the Son. 
they argue that Jesus is a created being. Listen, God has no beginning or end. So right off, the fact that they teach in their documents that he's created, you know that they're denying the deity of Christ. Now, we affirm the incarnation. Uh, we don't really call Christmas Jesus' birthday, but Jesus' Earth Day, that he's leaving heaven as the eternal son, and he takes on humanity. So when they use the term son of God, they use it in reference to, well, we're all sons and daughters of God, but not that he, he is God the Son. They secondly deny the doctrine of the Trinity. And so the Bible affirms that each member of the Trinity are co-equal, co-eternal. Again, co-eternal for Jesus, that's not true for them because they argue that he is created. So we're saying the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are three persons but only one being, where Mormons argue in their literature that they are distinct personages. In fact, they argue that God the Father has a physical body. And so if the Mormons show up at your door, they'll often take out their little picture notebook, or now probably they're using iPads, and uh, and they will show you a picture of um, what God the Father might look like, that he is has a physical body. And so they would take a verse like John 10, I and the Father are one. They, they don't take it contextually where Jesus is making an argument that he is God in human flesh. They say, no, they're one in purpose, but not one in nature. And that, again, is heresy. So if you want to understand what they really believe, you might want to read what's called the Articles of Faith. And those are considered the official doctrinal positions of the Mormon church. So they deny the deity of Christ. They deny the doctrine of the Trinity. They deny salvation by grace alone through faith alone. Um, They say that man is saved by faith and works. And so, again, just read their article on baptism. Uh, They will say that baptism, in fact, I've pulled it up here. So here's a direct quote. Article 1, Articles of Faith number 1.4, baptism means immersion in water and is to be administered by one having authority in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Baptism without divine authority is not valid, meaning anything outside of the Mormon church is not valid. It is a symbol of the burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That sounds good. And must be done in the likeness thereof. When a repentant soul is baptized, all former sins are forgiven. Oh, really? And need not be remembered. Remembered. When repentance is full and one has been cleansed through baptism, there comes a new vision of life in its glorious possibilities. How marvelous the promise of the Lord. Behold, he who has repented of his sins, the same is forgiven, and I and the Lord remember them no more. Um, I'm not sure where that's exactly from. It's a compilation of the Book of Mormon and Holy Scripture. So again, that's one of many examples. And when you push them up against the wall, they'll quote the Book of James. We had four Mormon missionaries one night that showed up at Meet the Pastor. And in God's providence, no one else showed up. And sometimes at Meet the Pastor, we'll have five people show up. A couple weeks ago, we had 32 people show up for Meet the Pastor. On that night, four showed up, and they were all Mormon missionaries, and that was good because God was protecting our folks, our visitors from these really wolves in sheep's clothing. 
And so when I helped them to see that they denied salvation by grace alone through faith alone, they quoted the book of James, faith without works is dead. That's good Catholic doctrine. It's not biblical doctrine. By the way, so again, you know, there are some secondary issues that they have highlighted that make various denominations. Okay, Presbyterians baptize infants. Uh, most evangelicals practice post-conversion baptism, but it's not a test of conversion unless you say that baptism somehow saves, and it does not. So there can be secondary issues. You can have a different view on eschatology or um you know, some things like that, and still be counted as a Christian. But you cannot deny the deity of Christ. You cannot deny the doctrine of the Trinity. You cannot deny the doctrine of salvation by grace alone. Neither can you deny the virgin birth. So Brigham Young says, the birth of the Savior was as natural as the births of our children. It was a result of natural action. He, meaning God the Father, partook of flesh and blood, and Jesus was begotten of the Father. So they argue that God the Father in his human body came down and had sex with Mary. That's what they're saying. So when they speak of the virgin birth, they just say that Mary was a virgin when God the Father had this physical relationship with her. This is just blatant heresy. So they're not affirming the virgin conception. So it's important that, you know, we don't speak simply of the virgin birth, that we speak of the virgin conception. And again, Joseph Smith made all these heretical remarks. And then they deny the authority of Scripture. Again, push comes to shove. You show them from the Bible. They say, well, the Bible's been corrupted. The only authority that you can ultimately trust is the final word is the Book of Mormon. Hey, listen, the Book of Mormon. So when these Mormon missionaries came to meet the pastor, I said, look, don't try to tell me that we're on the same page, that your Bible agrees with mine. So I asked them to turn to Alma chapter 7, verse 10, just a verse I memorized or the reference I memorized, and so they read it. I said, where does it say Jesus was born? Well, it says here in Alma chapter 7, verse 10, that he was born in Jerusalem. Oh, really? What does the prophet Micah say? Messiah will be born in Bethlehem of Judea. What does Matthew affirm in his gospel? Messiah is born in Bethlehem of Judea. But you see, Joseph Smith was not a very smart guy. And what he didn't understand is that the city of David term is used in reference to two places. A, the place where David's family heralded from, namely this Bethlehem, but also a term that was later applied to the city of Jerusalem. So being, again, not very bright, he was a great plagiarist and plagiarized large sections of the King James Version of the Bible that was available to him, and then added all his own heresies, though he came up with this fantastic story of how we got the Book of Mormon. But again, he was just a heretic. Now a lot of Mormons have questioned, you know, how good a guy he was, because now it's well been documented he had over 40 wives. And now with access to the Internet and some of their own documents, uh, that have been hidden and now have been revealed. People say, well, maybe this guy was a real pervert at heart, and he was. You know, a man's theology is often dictated by his morality. But Jesus can't be born in Bethlehem and be born in Jerusalem at the same time. Or Helaman, chapter 7, I forgot the verse, but there it's describing the death of Jesus. By the way, the Book of Mormon has 17 books within its book. We call the Book of Mormon, just like the Bible has 66 books. So over the death of Christ, it says darkness 
overshadowed the land for three days. And it's not some metaphorical darkness. It's a literal darkness. They're speaking about the stars and the moon and the sun. And was it three hours is in the Holy Scripture or is it three days? So, again, on every major point of Mormon uh, biblical truth, they are in error. So what you want to do is go to their documents. If you want to do some excellent research, Abigail, from Buford, whoever you are, I would suggest um, a book called The Kingdom of the Cults by Walter Martin. The Kingdom of the Cults by Walter Martin. Don't get the edition that was updated by Ravi Zacharias. Get The Kingdom of the Cults by Walter Martin. If you Google it right now, Rick, Google it, bring it up, uh, go to half.com, the eBay thing, and type in The Kingdom of the Cults. It's been in print since the 1960s, and my guess is you can get it for a song. And what Dr. Martin does so well um, is that he doesn't just say, well, this is what Mormons believe, where they can say, well, this is a straw man. This is not what we really believe. No, he actually quotes from their own documents, article, verse, number, really specific, or, you know, whether it's the, the, the doctrines, doctrinal book they have, Pearl of Great Prize, Book of Mormon, um, and then you can see, and then puts right next to what the Bible actually says. How, how much are you finding it for? Well, the best deal I've been able to find is $4.08, and if you buy two, you get one free. There you go. So that would be... Um, that would be great. So get one of the older editions where it's just uh, Walter Martin without the update by Ravi Zacharias and um, get that particular one. And so $4 maybe plus shipping. If you go to buy the new and you can't get the old one, all you can get is the updated one. It's probably going to cost you about $50. So I hope that will help. Good question. Let's go to the next one. All right. We have Alberto on line one. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Yes, good morning, gentlemen. My question is, why do ministers, after years and years, they've been teaching heresy, and then suddenly, well, after they got rich teaching it, suddenly they want to come now, suddenly they supposedly got enlightened, now they want to teach the truth. Why didn't they teach the truth in the beginning? Because uh, they, I guess because they, wouldn't, they couldn't get rich using the false teaching method. So, so why do a lot of preachers do that? Who do you have in mind? Anyone specifically? Gain money, and then after they, huh? Who do you have in mind? Anyone specifically? Well, like, like, like the like the prosperity gospel preachers or okay. any minister. Okay. Yeah. Okay. False heresy. You know, no. they, so suddenly get suddenly they get you know this revelation. Oh, all these years, oh, I'm a teacher wrong. Now they want to get straight. So, well, good, good so, question. Fair question. So. Again, I think the explosion of the Internet has woken a lot of people up because some of their uh, beliefs can be tested with Scripture, and sometimes it's just at people's fingertips. So take Benny Hinn, for example. Um, He's made millions and millions of dollars beyond belief. Um, Last time I looked, he was flying around in a $100 million jet and so on and so forth. Uh, his son, by the way, uh, excuse me, his nephew, Costihin, who worked for him for a decade, and he knew all the evil little ploys that they were using in the background, but it didn't bother him because he was getting rich too, later was converted, and he realized that he was engaged in deceiving souls 
to line his own pockets, and he exposed his own sin and evil that God had forgiven him of and his uncle's evil. And so people started to research him. And so Benny, Benny Hinn came out and said, oh, I was wrong on some of these issues. He's already backtracked on all those. He's just a liar, a deceitful person. And there are some things that are yet to come out. And I have a, uh, well, my son-in-law is close friends with Costi Hinn. There are some things that are yet to come out about Benny Hinn that will be a shocker when they do finally hit the fan. That's all I can say at this point about him. But why do they want to uh, change their view? Because they want to keep their audience. They don't want to lose any people. But fundamentally, has Benny Hinn changed? Not at all. He's still a liar. He's a deceit. He's still making false promises that it's God's will to make you healthy and wealthy. And who doesn't want to be healthy? Who doesn't want to be wealthy? That fills seats That's the kind of uh, false kingdom mentality that Jesus addressed in John chapter 6 when they wanted to make Jesus king. We address this at the Lord's Supper on Sunday. Uh, We want Jesus to be king. You know, he's the prophet that Moses spoke of. And because we know the prophet would be like Moses in some ways, very much unlike him in other ways. Obviously, Moses was a sinner. Jesus was sinless. But there was some parallels between Moses' life, who was a type or a picture of Jesus and the Lord himself. Maybe they reasoned, well, you know, Moses delivered us from Egypt. Jesus will deliver us from Rome. We want him as our king, but they only wanted Jesus for what he could do for them. They didn't want Jesus for spiritual reasons that they were in need of great forgiveness. And that's the, that's the ploy. That's the carrot that the prosperity gospel offers in its false. All right, very good. 843-525-1859. If you have a question on today's Bible line, Calvin from Baskerville, Virginia, would like you to please provide him with a reference for a deep commentary on Psalm 82. He'd appreciate cross-references or any other books that you uh, think might be helpful. Well, um, a couple of books that come right to mind. One would be The Treasury of David. Uh, Charles Haddon Spurgeon wrote that. It's a little more devotional in nature and will often intersect with the New Testament in terms of uh, relating New Testament truth to maybe what the psalm is saying. But it's still a classic work. It's uh, two, like, I I don't know how many volumes it originally sold in, but you can get it in, like, two really super fat volumes. Um, There's a series I have by Derek Kidner, K-I-D-N-E-R. It was printed in the 70s on InterVarsity Press. Again, you could... If you buy it new, it probably cost you uh, the three volumes, maybe $125. My guess is you can get it online for a song, a used copy, because it's been around for so long. Uh, but Derek Kidner does an excellent job on the Psalms, and I think it's in three volumes. So you want to get the volume that, um, you know, if you don't want to buy all three, and you might not find all three used, but you want to get the volume that would uh, hit uh, Psalm 82. Uh, there's another one by a guy named Stuart Perone, P-E-R-O-N-E, Stuart Perone. Uh, his is in three volumes, and if I remember, he divides it like 1 to 50, 51 to 100, and 101 to 150. But uh, he does an excellent job in exegeting the psalm. There's actually some better ones than these three, but you have to be able to read and interact with Hebrew 
And uh, but these are written on a popular level and yet a scholarly level that I think would be of great use and help to you. So maybe that would be a start for Calvin. All right. Very good. 843-525-1859. If you have a question on today's Bible line. All right, Pastor, uh, (laughs) fasten your pew belt, as you would say. This one's a long one. Helen uh, is writing from a country in Africa. Dear sir or madam, I read your article about female teachers, and wow, I do have questions, though. You said a woman's place is in the kitchen, and I agree that there's nothing with women being homely and taking care of their homes. As a matter of fact, it is good and godly to do so, but my first question is, what happens to single ladies? Are they useless in life and to God until a good man comes along, marries them, and gives them purpose? Do you believe that they are people who are not called to marry, what would you say about Paul's advice to both single men and women to stay single if then, if they can, because doing so enables them to serve God fully without any distraction? I couldn't help but notice the tone of disgust in your article about women and how easily they can be deceived. And my question is, are women the only set of people who get deceived? In my country in Africa, the gospel of health and wealth is the only known gospel, and this gospel is preached by men. Who then is deceiving who? They are just a few people who have spoken out against this false gospel, and a lot of them are, a lot of this few are actually women. Shocking. If women cannot help but be deceived and deceive others, what then is the role and the place of the Holy Spirit? Is he not supposed to help our weaknesses and bring us to all truth? What about the Bible? When a woman is supposedly deceiving anyone, shouldn't such person search the scriptures to find out if what she's saying is true and false, true or false? Do we not all have access to the scriptures to know the truth for ourselves now? Do women not know how to read so that they can read the scriptures for themselves, so that they can decipher right and wrong, godliness and ungodliness, so that they can rightly divide God's word? Is God's spirit, his spirit of wisdom, truth, and godliness, the Holy Spirit, not poured out on them too? Can they not also be considered dead to sin so that they can live to the glory of God just as men too? Should they just believe that they are inherently incapable of not being deceived and that the moment they share from the Bible what is actually written it with a man, they somehow have been deceived and are immediately capable of deceiving? Is this what the Bible teaches, that we, both male and female, should deceive or should believe about our rebirth in Christ, that women are somehow inherently still foolish and stupid despite the new nature we have in Christ? Are you telling me this mindset of yours is the truth and not heresy? I really want to know because I'm confused. Before reading yours and other articles like yours, as a woman who knows I have the gift of teaching, I found my identity in Christ and not in any mistake that Eve made. But after reading y'all's article, I don't know anymore. Well, I'm not sure what article she's talking about. (laughs) Well, she may be confusing me with somebody else. But number one, I do not have a printed paper or article uh, on 1 Timothy 2, 11 to 15, which I'm assuming, though I did write one actually for a church in Texas, which they actually adopted. It was a paper I wrote in seminary, but that's never been available to the general public. Um, but you're putting words in my mouth. So let me just respond. And again, I think you're probably confusing me, Helen, with someone else. So uh, there's a searchthescriptures.com my organization is called searchthescriptures.org, and so that's my app that you want to get. And if you go and type in First Timothy in the search bar, you will see that I did a number of messages. And I'm not even saying searchthescriptures.com produced this. I, I doubt they did. I haven't looked at their website in 10 years or so. 
with that said, I never said a woman's place is in the kitchen. Um, you know, that, that, that's just um, degrading and stupid. Now, did I, do I teach that a woman should be a worker at home? That's what the Bible teaches. Uh, the Bible affirms that a woman, and again, context is everything because you also ask about single moms. The assumption in Titus 2 is that we're dealing with a woman who's married and who has children at home. How do I know that? Well, older women likewise are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good, so that they may encourage the young women to do what? To love their husbands. So the assumption is is that they're married, to love their children, to be sensible, pure workers at home, being subject to their own husbands so that the word of God will not be dishonored. So the word of God is dishonored more and more today in that this simple admonition and commandment of God is being written off. It's old-fashioned to say that a mother should be a worker at home. And um, it, it's, it's a, a, literally, it's two words put together. It's the word ergos, which is the word for work, and we get our word energy from it. Oikos is the word for home. And so an erkugos, we might say an ergos oikos, is a home worker. Uh, the word is also combined, uh, ergos, with other words like ampel is the word for vine. And so an uh, ergos ampel would be a vine worker. Uh, where does a vine worker work? In a vineyard. There's a word ergos and the word geo for dirt or land or and it's typically translated in a geo ergos would be a, a farmer. Where does a farmer work? On a farm. And so when the Bible speaks of a home worker, it's speaking of a woman who works at home. In other words, she's giving her attention to her children, to the raising of them. She's not dropping them off in a daycare. And listen, my hat is off to any mother who has to help put food on the table. And I've always said this. But if you're asking me what God teaches, which is now a minority view, in fact, only 27% of American families now have what folks call the traditional role where the mother stays at home and the dad is a a provider. Uh, Only 27% of American families even do that. And that was like a survey four years ago, and it appears to be shrinking. Uh, But again, that's not just the traditional view. That's the biblical view. But because our nation has drifted from the scriptures, some that people did out of habit or out of model of the prior generation has now been totally jettisoned. And so, look, I tell people, if you want what the average family has, just do what the average family does. And there's a high chance that your family will break up and divorce. And there's a high chance that your children will not follow after Christ but they'll follow after the ways of the world. So God's not against moms. He's not against women. He's for children, among other things. And children are so highly valued in the sight of Almighty God that he wants the mom to be there to nurture them while the dad is providing by the sweat of his brow. So, again, he's not dealing with single mothers here. And he's not even dealing with Paul's advice that you raise on singleness from 1 Corinthians 7. Paul is dealing with, when you open to 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 1 is what we would call a hinge verse, 
now concerning the things about which you wrote. And so starting in 7-1, Paul addresses a number of the issues that they wrote him about, and he begins to tick them off one by one. Now, one of the questions they had was in light of the uh, gross persecution, Christians were dying all over the empire because they confessed Jesus was Lord and refused to bow down and say, Caesar is Lord. And because they said Jesus is Lord, many went to the Colosseums and they lost their lives. And so, you know, the the question was, well, what do we do? You know, should we even give our daughters in marriage? What what, what should we do was one of the questions in light of the persecution. Because if the husband dies, who's going to take care of the women? And so Paul's argument says, that, for instance, in 7 and chapter 7, he says, stop depriving one another. He's talking about married couples. Uh, but, you know, fulfill your marital obligations to one another. And then he says, yet I wish all men were even as I myself am in verse 7 of chapter 7. However, each one has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that. And so Paul is arguing, I wish all people were like me in the sense that God has gifted me to be single. By the way, that's not a spiritual gift. Sometimes it's put in a spiritual gift inventory. This is not something God does through you. This is something God does to you. And there's a certain, it's a minority percentage of people on the planet that God has created in such a way that they do not have to have their physical needs met in a marital relationship that they can be single their whole life. And Paul says that's to advantage and that they're able to give undistracted devotion to the work of the kingdom. And so that's a, a good thing. Now, the other passage that you're referencing is from 1 Timothy. And again, I have three messages on this in reference to women preachers. And I'm not saying that uh, women are like spiritually inferior. If you go back and listen to the message, what my argument is, is that when a woman steps out of her God-given role that she has been called to play, and in this case, Eve stepped out of uh, her, uh, away from her protective head, namely Adam, then you're opened up for deception. And by the way, that's true generally. When you are out of fellowship with God, when you are rebelling against known truth, you are open to deception, and you will begin to rationalize and make decisions and spiritualize the Word of God instead of taking it at face value. And he says, I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, period. That's what he said. God said what he meant. He meant what he said. Does that mean women can't teach? Of course not. They are called to teach women. In fact, Paul makes it very clear. It's the older women who are to disciple the younger women. So there are some things that only a woman can do in the church, and there are some things that only men can do in the church. It's not a matter of who is better. When the Bible teaches headship and submission in the home, when it teaches male leadership in the church, it's not saying that men are better. We just have different roles. I was reminding my son and my new daughter-in-law when I married them a week ago, or really officiated, God married them, what God has joined. I just officiated on God's behalf that for her to submit to my son Grant did not make her inferior. If you're a Marine and you submit to the leadership over you, it doesn't mean the leadership over you is better. But if you don't submit, you may find yourself in the brig. If uh, your employer asks you to do something, all things being equal, that it's not against God's command, 
and you say, well, I'm not doing it or I don't feel like doing it, um, you may be without a job, but for him to ask you doesn't mean he's better or he's inferior. And for a man to lead in his home to be the head doesn't mean he's better. It just means he's different. And so egalitarian theology, which is now sadly sweeping America and now infiltrating the African church in some realms, though in many ways the African church is healthier than the American church, except for those Americans who are going to pollute it as they go to quote-unquote serve and model things that are opposite of what God, God's Word teaches, lay all that aside. Um, the fact is, is that there is equality in terms of spiritual blessing, but there are various roles that God calls men and women to play in the church. So women are not in, incapable of teaching the Word of God. Um, they're not foolish and stupid. Please don't put this into my mouth that I would degrade women in such a way and even say I wrote an article on this because you have no such article. So you must be confusing me with someone else. But do I teach what God says, that a woman can't be a pastor? Yes, because that's what God's Word teaches. Do I teach that a woman a woman cannot teach in a mixed audience with men and women? Yes, because that's what God's Word teaches. So um, because we've rejected what God's Word has taught, we are paying a tremendous price. God has not mocked whatever a man sows that he will reap. You cannot escape the laws of sowing and reaping, whether it's in the home or in the church. So I hope that helps, and we'll send her that uh, audio answer to this dear woman in Africa, and I hope she'll think through, and I hope she'll download the Search the Scriptures app and listen to the three messages I did on uh, 1 Timothy 2, 8 to 15. By the way, that Search the Scriptures app is available in the iTunes Store or Google Play Store. Just uh, do a search for search the scriptures, and put in the word brogy because there are a couple of different things that come up if you uh, just say search the scriptures. Betty from Louisville, Kentucky writes, Dr. Brogy, I've listened to your sermons a few times and I appreciate your insight. I live in Louisville, Kentucky and attend Southeast Christian Church. The church has at least 14 satellite off-site churches through our, er, throughout our area. Kyle Eidelman is senior pastor, and I feel he is misleading the church in his sermons. One weekend, he had Sam Alberry preach to us, and I felt he was trying to get us to soft think about gay issues. This is wrong as far as I understand God's word. This is only one thing he's done that I think is going the wrong way, and I've tried to tell others who go to the church, but they put me down and say I am wrong. I would like to know your view on this pastor and his sermons, I even tried to get him to tell our people about the rapture and end times and the position of the church. His answer to me was, while we avoid using extra-biblical language to identify our interpretations, we try to frequently preach and teach about the return of Christ. The primary message in the Bible is to be ready for his return, so that has been our primary focus. I thank you in advance, and above all, may God bless you for your work. Sorry this is so long, but after watching Enemies Within the Church, I feel people need more on the truth of God. Well, they do, and um, I'm not a fan of his church or his ministry. I've, my son-in-law went to uh, Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, did a, um, a Master's of Divinity and THM there. Uh, Southern is in trouble right now, but lay all that aside. When he was there, it was good. It was sound, and um, 
with that said, I was became very familiar with uh, his church and his ministry. Right off, if you go to their doctrinal statement, it should raise some red flags for you. And so very often, this is not always true, so I want to be careful. So South um, Eastern Christian Church, as it's called, I think it's that the official name, uh, Rick, uh, I forgot the actual title of the yes, church. Yes, that's what the, he yeah. said. Um, you know, right off, you go to their doctrinal statement, and when you see under baptism, you know, verses like Acts 2.38, Romans 6, John 3, that should raise a huge red flag for you because that typically is teaching that baptism is part of the plan of salvation. So these in the Christian church denomination, which is a whole denomination in itself, though they wouldn't call themselves the denomination, um, they teach repent, believe, confess, be baptized. Now, the Bible does teach to repent and believe. It does teach that we openly, publicly confess our faith, and ultimately that should be expressed through baptism. Uh, But those are not steps to salvation, the latter two, that confession and baptism is part of the plan of salvation, that they somehow help save you because they do not. Those are simply evidences of conversion. And so Jesus can say, unless someone confesses me before men, I'll not confess him before my Father who's in heaven. The confession does not save you. That would mean mute people can't be saved. All he is saying is that if it's real on the inside, it will show itself on the outside. And that's why Jesus can say, who believes and is baptized will be saved. Who disbelieves will be lost. He who does not believe will be lost, will be condemned. Now, he doesn't say he does not believe and is not baptized. That would make baptism part of the plan of salvation. The plan of salvation is defined in 1 Corinthians 15 as the gospel. Paul says in Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's articular, the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation. He defines the gospel as the death, burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. And in 1 Corinthians 1.17, he says, Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. So right off, he separates baptism from the gospel. So whoever makes baptism part of the plan of salvation is already in gross error. So that should be a red flag right off. But again, people are so undertaught today, and I'm sure there are scores of born-again Christians who go to that church. Um, But that is a gross error to teach baptismal regeneration. Add to that, when you bring Sam Alberry into your pulpit, that should be a huge red flag. So he uh, started a ministry some years ago, and he did try to clean up the site because he had two men, supposedly former gay men, uh, who worked for him and wrote numerous articles on his website. But as he began to get uh, opportunities to speak on evangelical platform, he kind of cleaned it up and erased some of their articles though many of us have their articles, just like I have a lot of the uh, write-up that Black Lives Matter originally wrote about themselves, but then that became a deterrent to getting money from evangelical Christians and steering, stealing from them, and so they cleaned up their the way they looked. Um, but listen, you know, when you de- degrade, you know, marriage between a man and a woman as the founders of the Black Lives Matter movement. Black Lives Matter, so don't white lives in every life. Um, But when you uh, define marriage as something other than God does, that should be a red flag. So Sam Alberry 
is a, was a, a priest, so to speak, in England, uh, not a Roman Catholic priest, but in the Church of England, and uh, since left that and has this ministry, and he argues for same-sex attraction as being legitimate. So you can be a same-sex attracted Christian. No, you can't. Any more than you can be a heterosexual, lustful Christian. Same-sex attraction is wrong. And when God saves you, he wants to bring that spirit within your heart under the sanctifying work of God the Holy Spirit. Remember, temptation is not sin, but what you decide to do with that temptation. And so he and his colleagues have written about how same-sex men can hold hands and they can do everything short of penetration. This is evil beyond evil beyond evil. And to allow such a man in your pulpit is just absolute blatant foolishness. And it is to go against the clear teaching of God and to soften what God says on this issue of homosexuality. And so um, I wouldn't go to that church. I wouldn't send my dog to that church. I don't care how big it is or how many campuses they have. Any more than I'd send someone to Joel Osteen, who has the largest church in America, who preaches another Jesus. And look at Joel Osteen's interview with Oprah Winfrey. Google that for YouTube on homosexuality, and you'll see how weak he is. So today, you know, you're homophobic. You hate gay people if you speak the truth in love. No, I don't want gay people to go to hell any more than I want someone who lives in fornication and adultery to go to hell as a heterosexual. I want them to go to heaven, but you can't help people if you don't speak the truth in love. And therein lies the problem, men wanting to be liked instead of being called by God to preach the whole counsel of Scripture, whether it's easy truth or difficult truth. Oh, but I don't want to send anybody away. I want to keep this empire growing and big and the coffers full So I'll give people what they want to hear. I wouldn't send my dog to that church. Find another Bible-believing church in the area. Appreciate the questions today. Wish we had time for more, but we're out of time. But God willing, we'll be back here next Tuesday at 11 o'clock for The Bible Line. You're free to submit questions at thebiblelinetbl at whab.net, or you can go to searchthescriptures.org. Hit the drop-down menu, ask Dr. Berge a question, and sooner or later, by God's grace, we will answer it if we're not raptured before. God bless you. Walk with Jesus today. 